0: Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter so hi there podcast listeners thank you so much for coming back to the authors of the pacific northwest and this week we are continuing our discussion with philip kinney he is the author of the writer's crucible and we had philip on last week and um we talked a bit about his first half of his book and we're going to go into the second half of the book so um philip this morning say hello to everyone that's listening
1: good morning everyone i'm glad to be back with you again thanks Um, for listening
0: well, we it was our pleasure having you last week, and I'm just going to recap a little bit for those of you that might be jumping into the podcast this week. I'm going to encourage you to go back to last week and listen to last week's, because we talked with Philip um, about the first part of his book, um, From the Writer's Crucible, and it has a lot to do with what I summarized this. This wasn't Philip's words, but I summarized like the human condition the, that kind of can hinder us, and what Philip describes as constrict us as writers. Um, So there's the self project he talked about and being good enough having the good enough self and we we dove into a lot of that so um, moving forward we're gonna go today and we're gonna talk (laughs) about part three through five out of his book and um, I'm gonna just quickly say what those parts are and then we're gonna dive right in so um, part three is the theater of the mind and i'll have um, philip come back and kind of recap what each of these parts are about Um, and then there's materials novel ideas and characters and so philip kind of let's start just right out of the bat about the section of theater of the mind can you kind of explain to us um, as we're getting if we if we're a reader and we've read through that first section you know section one through three, and we're getting set up for the, the next section. Um, the Theater of the Mind. Tell us what we can expect.
1: Yes. Uh, well, the Theater of the Mind is dear to me. It's one of my favorite parts of the book since I'm a psychotherapist and studied psychology for years. And I put the Theater and the Mind there to give people a, a more complete orientation to the complexity. Uh, their psyches. Uh, many of the books are uh, articles that are written by um, authors uh, that um, to help uh, writers get through uh, difficult times with uh, self-doubt, et cetera, are, are quite good as far as they go and they're really well-intended. And I, and I think, unfortunately, uh, they um, f- f- follow short of uh, really giving um, credence to the, challenging complexity and, uh, of the, and the depth of the psyche. So I wrote this section to um, help people understand better the multiple layers of the psyche, of the conscious and the unconscious, the multiple characters, people, friends, acquaintances, unknowns that populate the psyche from early in our lives till the present. And people have great experience of that in their dream life, where you know, it could often be populated by any number of characters and um, so to really go into some depth, I think writers certainly are capable of of getting this and and mm-hmm. it will add a, a depth a level of uh, understanding and compassion to what we struggle with mm-hmm. and when many of these um, you know, psychological uh, patterns we get into are repetitive, and they're not easily undone. Uh, so I hope that this chapter will um, illuminate some of that, give people empathy for themselves, and a real appreciation for uh, how you know difficult it is, how um, complex the psyche is.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what I love and, and I'm going to read this quote um, from the very first part of the theater and and I think it it really kind of sums up what I felt you did well in this book for me. Um, the thing that I love readers uh, listeners and readers about this section is that Philip broke it down into con- it's not a bit a lot of psycho babble sorry if I use that word and it's offensive but uh, some no, of us okay. that, that don't have a reference for psychology in the depth of a discipline We could get lost in the psycho language the psychology language But what philip has done so brilliantly in this section and, and so I had to commend you in this is that you put it in terms of an artistic um An actual terms that we would be familiar with like the theater and then you talk it about does. the script the stage and setting the actors um, you break it down the curtain which I love the curtain that was a brilliant way yeah, so and, yeah, and the lights so what Philip wrote was that he it says my hope is that understanding the psychology of the inner theater helps put the not good enough self into context so when I read that and then I went through these chapters it was Well enough done for me that I wasn't confused by all of the discipline of of psychology. I got it. I was like...
1: That's good to hear.
0: Oh, so this is great. So listeners, um, I I tend to um, uh, get sidetracked when there's a lot of uh, discussion in a book that's a little... I love intellectual discussion, but that's not for everybody. So definitely go in and get this book because I think that what you, uh, how you wrote it, was brilliant for all of us laymen. Um, Oh, good. The one part I want to talk about a little bit, and and I think this is so paramount we touched on a little bit at last last episode but I loved how you put this because I've always wondered why for me as a person um, I always struggle with people that seem to have a lot of drama in their life like constant drama like never, never ending right and so I tend to not gravitate towards people like that because I've gotten to a place in my life where I realized drama was not beneficial i went and got some healing and you know did the steps i needed to to figure out what was going on that was triggering drama and um and then i started to raise my kids to not gravitate towards drama you know that kind of thing so now i'm not really interested in in that that type of lifestyle i would say so you have a chapter called drama but what i love about it is that drama rhymes with trauma and it was almost like for the first time when i was reading this it dawned on me why i Don't gravitate towards dramatic, consistent lifestyles. So so that we can clue in the readers what you're talking about a little bit in this chapter. Share with us um, why drama rhymes with trauma. (laughs)
1: Right. Oh, boy. I know. It's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so important. And and I know what you mean. And and the sad thing about people who experience a lot of trauma who manifest it in terms of drama um, is that it ends up repelling people. Just like you felt you wanted to stay away from these people. You know, trauma manifests, simply speaking, in two ways. Usually it's either vastly or overly internalized. So it's all in the private world of the person, all the torment, all the fear, the shame, etc., or it gets externalized and externalizing trauma is a way of of psychic regulation. It's an attempt to um, unburden the psyche, if you will, by projecting it outwards. It's very difficult to be around, but it's also very uh, difficult for the person who's doing it. But the empathic view of it is that in many ways, they're trying their best to regulate and uh, unbearable feelings mm-hmm. and fears. Mm-hmm. Does that get to it? What, that, that fits what you're
0: Absolutely. It fits perfectly. And how you set it up in the book is that, you know, from what I understand is that um, we can function in that trauma, drama aspect our whole lives, but it can, if we, if we function at that level all the time, it's going to constrict our abilities to be creative. Did I get that right?
1: (laughs) Well, that's right. And creative and or have good, healthy relationships, nourishing relationships. Mm Because, you know, sadly, um, the the people who um, manifest drama, uh, you know, generally people, you know, try to uh, distance themselves. And and it's very hard uh, to be empathic of um, someone who's caught in this. Mm -hmm. But... um, uh let's see where was I going with that but trauma and you know, we've learned so much about trauma in the last 20, 25, 30 years it, there was a lot of denial about the trauma that women have known for centuries of yes. sexual exploitation
0: mm-hmm.
1: even in my field in, until the 70s or 80s there was a tremendous amount of denial mm-hmm. particularly coming out of Freudian schools and that's all changed terrifically and And in some cases, uh, it was the women's movement speaking up about sexual trauma. And it was the Vietnam War where veterans came home and for the first time, people recognized how they were traumatized and and really did something about it and started studying it. But it's been an enormous amount of study and um, clinical uh, um, creativity in learning how to uh, treat trauma. So, You know, a number, let's face it, a number of writers have experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, I I just encourage anybody who has to, um, you know, if if you're struggling with it, to seek treatment. There's Mm -hmm. not all therapists are creative equal. If Mm -hmm. you've had a bad experience, some aren't that great. But Mm -hmm. there's just a lot that are and Mm -hmm. it works. Mm -hmm. And it can really, it's not a, you know, 100% cure but there's a lot of relief people can experience a lot of reduction of constriction. And more important than that, there's a lot of um, reduction of the fear. The the two big fears of trauma are one that it will repeat Mm -hmm. that at any second it can happen again. Mm -hmm. And well, that's not quite right. And any second it will happen again. And people Mm -hmm. live with that readiness. Mm -hmm. Some freeze up inside and some create drama to keep, keep it away.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The second great fear is that the emotional impact of trauma, which again, you have to understand ordinary things that you and I might consider ordinary emotions can be experienced by someone as traumatic who has, who has gone through trauma. So ordinary feelings are frightful because the tr- person has experienced trauma fears and believes and feels that those uh, feelings will be never ending. Mm-hmm. They're t- timeless. Mm-hmm. Once activated, um, you're stuck in them, mm-hmm. and and therefore elaborate strategies, um, none of which are particularly uh, conducive to either relationships or creative work, are 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 designed to protect oneself.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I love it. And there is, I mean, there's a whole several podcasts we can go into this, uh, but I, I want to echo what you said about if, if you're experiencing trauma in your life and you're listening to this and you have these moments where you're just in the middle of it and, and you haven't found the person to get, you know, talk to or get help, encourage you to do so and um, step through and find someone and let, and like Philip said, not all, counselors are the same um i i know i have been through several counselors until i found the right one that could speak the language that i needed to hear right that's important to hear and and it's okay at first i felt like it wasn't okay and then i was encouraged again and again you know find the right person and and for me you know and also i think it's important to realize that you might find that healing in different aspects you know it might be um Somebody, if you're a religious, you might need to find a religious counselor that speaks the language it's going to speak to you, you know, kind of a thing. Or if right. it, you're not, it's okay to find something else. But what the thing that really hit me over the head about this chapter was the one line that said, what is stolen by trauma is the peaceful ground of existence.
1: Yeah. and
0: being somebody that has lived through and come through the other side of of it not that i don't struggle but i i can definitely yeah. clearly give you a definition of the times that i struggled to the time i came on the other side i did not have that peaceful ground of existence i was i i felt like i was constantly having to, like you explained always having to self preserve myself and yeah. and then when you get on the other side it it's <laughs> a miracle <laughs> you know so so i encourage any listeners that might be struggling right now you know reach out let's let's um find some help you know and, and it, it'll it'll make your life a lot better <laughs> in the long run and your relationships better
1: so. well i worked with a given example i worked with a writer who's quite talented just very very talented person and um uh, this person was writing a memoir mm-hmm. And there had been quite a bit of trauma in her family, um, not all of which was, a lot of which was emotional and verbal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so as the memoir progressed, every time she got c- close to um, speaking the truth, her mm-hmm. truth, mm-hmm. Not, the, not the family mythology truth, but her truth about her experience, um, she got absolutely flooded with fear Mm -hmm. and of course she was breaking a common rule which is you don't talk about it exactly this stays within these walls and Mm -hmm. if you talk about it outside you're betraying the family and Mm -hmm. etc and so we had to work quite a bit with her to feel that um, to be able to experience her feelings but to also stand in them so that she could ride it through. Mm-hmm. The problem is people cannot bear the feelings, so they start to dissociate, they try to push them away, mm-hmm. etc., which which uh, doesn't work and which really gives power to the expectation of the trauma. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we worked with her to be able to tolerate her feelings enough to let them ride through, and they, they will have a, a life of their own, a beginning, mm-hmm. in the middle of an end, and to feel... And then we had to work on the not good enough thing to Mm -hmm. to support her entitlement to her reality. That gives you a little snapshot, maybe, of how that can work
0: it's a perfect snapshot and especially and then i'm sure at that point of when she hopefully got to that place her writing probably broke open and she felt that freedom to to write (laughs) you know her truth she did she finished
1: the memoir and she's moved on to other things yeah yeah yeah
0: how powerful super powerful so i wanted to make sure we touched on that chapter because for me it it I feel like it was one of the most, I think the book is very encouraging, but that one in particular was super encouraging for me.
1: So we also, you know, we think people have to appreciate and have empathy for how bewildering the psyche can be. It can be brilliantly clarifying and illuminating as it is in our creative work, but it can also be bewildering. So one of my favorite things in this chapter is just a little paragraph on how, um, Uh, Think of your uh, psychological world as an Escher drawing that has come to life in 3D. Numbers of people are moving up and down stairways that go nowhere and everywhere, that appear and disappear from nothing, that change direction in a flash and don't really lead anywhere. So I just love that because you look at an Escher drawing (laughs) and you just see the mind at work. Yeah and it's a scrambled mind it
0: is and sometimes it feels that there is that scramble and there's all that bumping around in there so so wonderful so let's go into the the next section is section four and and it's called materials and I once again Philip what I think that is so brilliant about how you've written this is that you really cut out all the the huge barrier with psychology discipline and really brought this book down to a writer standpoint and so in this section you guys I found it just fun because each chapter Philip talks about um instruments and materials that we would use as writers like the pencil the writer's desk um the eraser which i thought was brilliant and then the paper was so good i don't want to tell the readers about the paper at the very beginning because it's just too great (laughs) and and the (laughs) chair i was like i i literally stopped like this is so smart (laughs) you're so smart so so let's break down um, we don't have to break down all of them, but which which one out of the pencil, the paper, the desk, which one is for you, um, your favorite or your most profound material when you're working with others or, or for yourself as you're working through, um, maybe your own self-doubts as a writer? Uh,
1: you know, uh, I'm not trying to be coy, but I really don't know. It sort of changes from day to day. <laughs> I have to tell you, of all the, the, the parts in the book, I really am fondest of this part.
0: I, I love this part, really. But there's I do something <laughs>
1: about taking simple objects mm-hmm. and seeing them as dear and precious and metaphors mm-hmm. for uh, of inner processes that we uh, experience and use to our to the benefit of the creative work. So, I you know in the introduction to the book I said I'm trying I want this book to be conversational.
0: And it I don't really want it, is. Mm-hmm. I,
1: mm-hmm. I don't want it to be academic, or, and I don't want it to be clinical.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I really want to speak to people as as a person, as an author, and, a, and but and I know in my work when I find myself using fancy terms. I know I'm off. Mm. I'm kind of faking it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: yeah. <laughs> I'm caught yeah. in something, trying to be, trying to really defend against not knowing, I think, in my anxieties about that. So, with this, I have to say, I don't know. I like them all. I, I really like the. I, I love the, the section too. Yeah. I,
0: I really, from, really do.
1: Uh, from that's routine. Yeah. And, um, but I don't know. I, I know what to tell you. I like I liked the paper also.
0: I love I the paper. But let's not share that because I really want readers to experience it like I did. So we'll skip the paper. Let's talk about my favorite one that jumped out at me as I was reading this. And I don't know. Maybe it's just the space that I'm in in, in working through my process of working on my novel. Um the writer's desk was the one that really jumped out to me.
1: Okay, great. Yes.
0: I love the pencil though. So my favorite part yeah. about the pencil at the very end, you talked about be as humble as the pencil. And, yes. and you know, I don't write with a pencil. I write on a keyboard. But I picked up a pencil during that chapter and I'm looking at it while you're, you know, while I'm reading it and I'm like, what a great metaphor. So those of you, you know, when you get this book, make sure you have a a pencil handy because I think it's a great analogy of what he wants to share with you. But
1: even if you don't, even if you use a keyboard, which most people do now, it's great to keep a pencil right by your desk (laughs) and just pick it up every once in a while and think, gosh, you know, all my ancestors used a pencil. Mm -hmm. My favorite author is Toni Morrison and she had uh, two kids and worked a day job and came home at night and wrote, Uh, her books for a while before she got famous uh, with a pencil Mm -hmm. so I think it's a very uh, 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 it's a subliminal support (laughs) Mm -hmm. to have close by
0: and it makes me that chapter makes me want to spend some time every morning before life gets busy to write with a pencil and paper and just do a few a few writings that way just to remind myself of of all you were saying about in that chapter
1: Well, that's a great idea, you know, I mean, because you can you could use it just as a warm up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. before you start working on your novel on your uh, computer.
0: Yeah, I, I I think I'm going to try to instill that into my my daily writing practice, which is still evolving. <laughs> so I don't yeah, sit, people don't think that I'm writing every single day because with the busy life I have, it's it's not yeah. that way. But I'm working on that. But the desk, so the writer's desk. You you start out with um, a picture of a writer's desk desk that you actually have in your office, and yeah. and I love that picture. My my desk is. Um, a combination right now of my writer's desk, my podcast desk desk, and my work desk for everyday work. So I I have three things on my desk. But for me, when it's writing time and I can shut down the podcast microphone and I can shut off my computer for work and I'm just at the writing part of my desk, the little corner that has my personal laptop and I can write, that that desk um, really encompasses what you were talking about as far as the essence of the writing desk is faithful. <laughs> and I just love that. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Um, you you mentioned a little bit in here about I'm going, you guys got to give me a second here as I find it. Um, you were talking about mothers and dependency and um the routine and and mothers in the past and and you know you you hope that all of us have great mothers and then you know, but not all of us did with post-World War II America. Um, but I kind of got a little lost of how the mothers were tied into dependency and routine in that one section. Can you help me out there a little bit and kind of explain what maybe I might be missing? I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> well, you could say the lap or the breast is the ah, first desk. Okay. I got it. Held. Really? It's the it's the it's the being held and having the regular dependable routines. Uh, the attachment routines, really, mm-hmm. of eating, nursing, eye gazing, talking, mm-hmm. touching, that are the initial um, um, developmental needs of a child to de- develop a secure sense of attachment and self. Mm-hmm. And so that, that holding, the dependency, uh, being able to rely on that holding function initially provided by the mother, but then I think you know the, meta, the desk is a great metaphor for it. It's there every day. Uh-huh. If, you, if you say, screw it to your writing, this, is, this stinks, I can't do this and go away for a month, it's still there, it doesn't care. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's just waiting for you. So I thought that was a good one that also translates into the um, very important uh, aspect of routine. Mm-hmm. And that me as a you know kid who came of age in the late '60s, I just scoffed at routine. I just mm-hmm. a lot of us just rebelled because it was it was the routine of conformity and and constriction. But now I see routine as just something, such a quality of um, support mm-hmm. and, and holding and. And some of the writers, like Maya Angelou and, and uh, Stephen King, um, and uh, Haruki Murakami—did I say that right? Yeah, you may. Uh, have. That I quote. <laughs> listen to this quote from Murakami. I, I just this puts chills on my spine. The repetition itself becomes the important thing. It's a form of mesmerizing. I mesmerizing. I mesmerize to reach a deeper state of mind. Stephen King says, I do repeat these things the same way every day to be a way of saying to the mind, you're going to be dreaming soon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh.
0: I know. It's fantastic. And routine, mm. I've, I have read from Stephen King, he is very, very much set up in a routine where he writes, the, you know, every single day except for, I think, his birthday and Christmas is the only yeah. two times that he does not write. <laughs> you know, and and I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. But I do love, I love this chapter. Now I understand where I missed the whole mother uh you know thing that you were talking about i get it now okay glad Um, so thank you i appreciate that because i don't know maybe i was reading too fast in that section that didn't grasp but i get it now and i think that's a beautiful analogy of the desk um I, i had too had struggled with routine for a long time when my kids were little i had the routine down and when we set out yeah. of the routine our life was chaotic and then i just right. realized i didn't buy into the whole idea of like you know your kids kind of do what they want don't have a routine i was like i have to have routine because i'm going crazy if i don't so um it set up my lifestyle of you know really trying to stick to routines and when i'm out of that i i get a little out of out of whack yeah. and so yeah. i've I've been struggling with the writing routine of finding the right times to write and incorporating it in the day and, and with, so it's very hard. So, so for me, when I take my takeaway from that chapter is the reminder that, um, you know, my writer's desk, like you said, is always going to be there waiting for me with its open arms, you know, to come and embrace me and allow me to start writing. I just need to find the time to sit down and, and, allow that to happen
1: (laughs) well you know a lot of people talk about discipline I have a lot of people come to see me and they're they're really down on themselves because they aren't quote disciplined enough Mm -hmm. and and I I really kind of I understand that because I started writing late in life Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of you know when I wrote my first novel it was after I started it a couple months after my mother and brother died and I had two Teenage kids, so mm-hmm. I know about busy, plus a mm-hmm. full-time practice. But um, you know, I think um, th- it's less about discipline, mm-hmm. and, and maybe this is the '60s and me talking again. But, <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's more about love and, mm-hmm. Want mm-hmm. and wanting it. Like I get up at five in the morning and I meditate first thing, and then I write lots of times. I'm already writing before I get to the desk Mm because meditation, it's happening. But I I write, I get there because I just love it and I Mm -hmm. want it. And it's not discipline. I'm really not a very disciplined person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's it's want. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that trauma and all these other emotional constrictions inhibit is wanting. Mm -hmm. And so I try to make sure that um, I uh, at least write a sentence every day, mm-hmm. and even if it's just a sentence, it's good, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it feels like it keeps me tethered.
0: Yes. Yes, I have experienced that more than I can imagine, and I do believe it, it comes from love. Because I am an incredibly disciplined person. There's no way I could have, you know, yeah. raised the two kids, finished my education as an adult, work full time, and get yeah. to the the academic level that I'm at with my career and work, and and still maintain, you know, a fabulous relationship with a husband and everything. Do all of it. Um, So I'm not for me. It's not so much that I struggle with discipline Uh, I think I struggle with the belief that uh, the time is valuable enough for me. This I feel selfish sometimes because it's so uh-huh. rewarding <laughs> you know, yeah. for me to sit down and write. Yeah. And I'm like, there's all these other competing things that need my attention. <laughs> yeah, but sure. it's, o- it's okay for me to sit down and enjoy this writing and this process and embrace it. Because, so you
1: may just struggle more with the deserving. Yes, stuff.
0: the deserving aspect. I definitely yeah. struggle with that. Um, yeah. And, and, yep. Yeah, that's a definite... Yeah. Definitely one there that I'm working on. And, you know, so, so
1: it's, I think it's hard for a lot of women and mothers. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just, uh, it's a good one to wrestle with.
0: It is. It really is. <laughs> and it's funny. Cause my, um, my husband and I were just talking about it because, and it has nothing to do with him. He, he is, it's completely with me cause he absolutely takes care of me the right way in the sense that he always tells yeah. me I deserve Oh, yeah, he, you know, he he's he
1: a good man I he like is. the sound of your husband. He
0: really does. He speaks <laughs> the right things to me. And so and I, and I hope I do the same for him in return. Um, yeah, so he he does that. So it's not that. It's it's just that, you know, we were laughing about it because our daughters are grown. But when it comes down to, you know, if one of our kids is still sick, they don't live at home with us, but they need to I will stop and drop everything and go be with them. You know, yeah. even if it's a competitive uh, sense of me taking care of myself. I'll, I will go above and beyond and take care of the kids still yeah. to this day. Right. And so yeah. he laughs. He goes, yeah, you definitely are a mother in that sense that, you know, yeah so
1: remember is mother's day
0: yeah yeah exactly yeah so i think we deviated a little. let's let's pull it back into the novel ideas which i think is enough man you know the last half of this book was just fantastic i loved it so oh it's um, good to
1: hear yeah i don't often hear people talk about it in such detail so it's it's nice
0: well, I read it, so that's important. <laughs> and,
1: yeah,
0: and that's that's really what I want to do is, you know, I want to read it and then bring you back on so we could have these discussions, you know. And I want listeners to be like, oh, that sounds interesting. So, so um, share uh-huh. share with us a little bit, you know, with this last this last part. It's part five: novel ideas because you break down once again some metaphors into um, scribbling, plot, um, dialogue. And narration um, the reader which I thought was very fascinating very very good uh, I
1: love the reader mm-hmm.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah very good and then genre and the and then the last um, section we'll talk about later's characters so so break down that for us briefly and 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 read and listeners you know this is just a brief synopsis of how I look at overview of this book so it's not going to be all conclusive for any means <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um I'll tell you what, it's been so long since I read this that I'm yeah. a little dull, but I I and I know I was thinking about, you know, obviously it's a play on words uh-huh. and ideas, and just to reimagine ways of approaching our work. Now the first the first one is maybe the most obvious, it's scribbling and it uh-huh. it sort of comes from a Uh, a technique in child therapy developed by some therapists in London a long time ago that you'd let the child, you'd draw an initial line and then let the child take over Mm -hmm. and draw lines and doodle until something recognizable uh, appeared out of their unconscious, much like a Rorschach drawing. And um, so I just, and I think that I actually do that sometimes when I'm feeling dull I'll just start to literally scribble pick up the pencil and scribble or I'll scribble figuratively with words and just let it rip and not give a hoot it's sort of like you know you take one of those refrigerator poems and throw it against the refrigerator just just see what 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 lands but just basically um to free up um the mind from you know, fears or preconceptions about how one should work. Mm-hmm.
0: I do. I do think that the the um, symbolism is so good. So I'm going to read a little bit out of my favorite section, the reader. So we just alluded to that. That is both our favorite
1: one. Oh, uh, you're going to read out of the reader. Okay. Yes,
0: I am, and I'm going to read to you the the for the listeners the one section that I I love, and I think this really summarizes for me your whole book, and um and so. I'm just going to get started. So it's um, page 225, Philip, if you
1: have it. Okay, I got it.
0: Okay. So one of my favorite parts is, here's a novel idea, which I love that you set that up. Here's a novel idea. Be kind to yourself. Be a kind reader. I hope you can trust yourself well with kindness and in recognition of goodness of your work. Celebrate before you criticize something I'm trying to learn. <laughs> I know this can be hard, but try. I really hope you can be kind to yourself, accepting and affirming. You are a writer. You are precious. The, the They say a dog needs four positive words to every negative one. I say you and I use the same kind of treatment. Remember the mantra, good enough, good enough, good enough. Thank God almighty, I am good enough. And it, this makes me kind of tear up a little bit because you didn't know this, but um, when my husband met me, I was only 19 and I never believed I was good enough and he was older and, the one, and I was very negative. And so the one thing he taught me early on in our relationship was every time I said something negative about myself or about somebody else, he would stop me and say, now let's think about four positive things. <laughs> to retrain my whole framework of positivity. Uh, and uh, and to this day we do it with each other, you know.
1: Oh that's good.
0: And so when I read that, I'm like, oh my goodness, because um the belief to be kind to ourselves. And that will help us to be kind to others around us and also to believe that we are good enough, you know? And I love how you played that in the whole idea of what kind of reader are you? Are you reading yourself correctly? You know, are you, are you reading others? That kind of thing. So I wanted to share that as being one of, I'm a little emotional. How great that just hit me. I'm like, I told my husband, I go, he just did the four positive negatives. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's good.
0: I love it. I love it. So so, well, do you I wanna... think I,
1: I don't remember in this chapter, but I think I went into it about the one thing that's kind of staggering to me still with myself and my work and talking to writers is how hard it is to read ourselves to mm-hmm. see ourselves to recognize what we're doing and the value and, mm-hmm. and to feel good enough and it's 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 kind of sad at times how, and bewildering why that is so tricky and difficult, but mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. It really is. And we, I, can't I, rec- we don't recognize, people don't recognize how good they are.
0: <laughs> no, they don't. And, and, and I, you can
1: sit there and tell half of them while you, 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 how they are, but it's hard to take it in.
0: I, so, I agree with you 100%. One thing, I'm going to jump in here, so I apologize for interrupting. no, it's fine. The thing that I found really powerful, and I don't know if other writers find this or you heard this when you work with uh, writers, I will write characters on characteristics that I know that I don't really recognize them as my characteristics. For example, my female characters will be incredibly strong women. And then when my readers or people read it, they're like, man, that's how I see you. Which is funny because I don't always see myself that way. Or they'll say, your character reminds me of you. I think it's almost subconscious that I yeah. can't recognize it in myself, but boy, I can create those characters That's very right. well. That's a
1: good point. Good point. Yeah.
0: And same with, same with negative characters. I think there's some, I think it's almost easier to, and this kind of sets up this last chapter almost in your book. Um, I, I have no problem writing villains and um negative characters they're almost easier for me to write
1: <laughs> right, I see. You know? I, I, I can understand that now fill
0: them out like crazy and they're very realistic um and and it's funny because maybe that's a process of me you know recognizing maybe some of my negative sides right I don't yeah.
1: know <laughs> well writing is a great great way to purge or yeah <laughs> some yeah. of these uh negative streams that go yeah. through us or to yeah. uh you know locate them elsewhere so we get a little reprieve and so <laughs> you wonder about people who write these terror horror stories i know i know what I their wonder. internal world is like but yeah maybe
0: not maybe point. they're the happiest people in the whole world because they've purged themselves of all the horror and terrors in their mind i don't know
1: <laughs> the other cool thing about this chapter i love is and people if you if you read this uh, there's a a bit on this, this chapter on The Reader about a certain wonderful pickpocket mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. And the, the point of the, um, of the story about the pickpocket is that his, his uh, mastery is, is not dependent on his quick hands, but it's, it's dependent on him reading people and Reading mm-hmm. their maps of reality mm-hmm. and so one of the things that it comes down to in reading yourself is understanding your own maps of reality as, as you just shared there's a, your negativity, or in my case, i you know I always felt I was not up to it, not smart enough to be mm-hmm. to be a writer and to put myself out so these certainly these maps of reality are conscious, and some are not so uh, you know writing. Uh, besides being a wonderful uh, experience of creation, is also a, a, a great uh, avenue for self exploration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just in, like journaling, but I mean in the f- in the act of making a, a a piece of art or a book. You know, you uh, learn a lot about yourself and how you see the world and and what the gaps are. You know, what you don't see.
0: Mm-hmm great segue to the very last section which is I believe section five uh characters and it's it's actually a little bit of a briefer section than the rest of the book but I I enjoyed it It, in the sense that you I feel like you tied everything in very well to the writer and and our villains and and Um, editors and how we respond to maybe editors agents and publishers and how how that can be profound in our world (laughs) as writers Yes. yeah
1: Yeah,
0: so share a little bit about the three sections so you have the protagonist the villain and a chapter on editors um, agents and publishers can you give us a little bit about those three sections I mean they're very different individual but kind of Sum it up for us about characters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah, let's see. Well, I don't remember how I came about this. I, I think I was going to put it in at first, but then it mm-hmm. occurred to me, how can you write a book on writing and, and your self-esteem really without putting in stuff about editors and publishers? Mm-hmm. And I think I was avoiding it because of my dis terror and disdain for editors
0: <laughs> <laughs> i have it too so i i'm very terrified of that process <laughs>
1: starting with mrs simmons my seventh grade english teacher who who uh was sadistic enough to make us read david copperfield Oh dear! Grade. i was just a basketball jock and i i didn't see what the heck is this i i couldn't begin to comprehend david copperfield and so we had to write a paper on it, and I'm sure it was just mishmash. And it came back. I got. I remember. It was such a terrible moment. I got a D on it, and it really looked like she'd have a, had a serious nosebleed over the paper.
0: <laughs> I've <laughs> had With a few, all this
1: red ink. I, trust oh
0: me, I have had a few of those myself growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I had when actually I wrote one my teacher. Novel, I
1: begged my editor to. Edited in green
0: ink. <laughs> yeah, well, you know there there is a very psychological aspect of the red and the green ink, and so in higher education now we have been trained for years that with adult students you never use red pen ever because of the psychological yeah. connotation that's with it. You yeah. always use green oh, when yeah. you're work. Yeah, so th- so you're right in that, and that was very smart for you to ask your editor to use green because of those experiences we have with children where we are very edited heavily in our work it will totally derail us. And I work with students all the time that have huge fears of writing or huge fears of math because of those childhood experiences in school. So you're
1: right on with that. Greening. Well, I'm not sure it helped all that much, but it it (laughs) probably helped some. I kept writing it. But, you know, a lot of these are, these things about editors and stuff are really projective mirrors where the villains, the editors, the publishers, they they really... um, You know, they speak to our fears and they speak to aspects of ourselves that maybe we need to uh, work with. You know, Mm -hmm. aspects of ourselves that are rejecting towards our work or Mm -hmm. uh, 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 say, let's take an agent, the Mm -hmm. the idea of an agent. Now, to to me, that speaks to the difficulty that a lot of authors have, including myself, um, uh, to the point where when I published Radiance, I really didn't do much. Publicity at all. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought the world would come to me, but mm-hmm. it's very hard to, for me to advocate for myself, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to publicize, to to um, reach out to um, you know to for uh, say a reading or to speak at a conference. Mm-hmm. Um, those are difficult. So, um, the <laughs> idea.
0: That's a very, very common thing. And I hope you know, I mean, it's for authors, all the authors that I've interviewed in the last year, um, it's the one thing that we talk about a lot is that self-promotion for us is so challenging and getting even to the point of doing public readings or book signings or solicitating yourself towards agents or publishers, that's where a lot of authors will stop. Writing yeah. is beautiful. Let's write all day. But having yeah. to step out there, that's yeah. so hard to self-promote. And I'm the same way. I mean, people don't believe that because I naturally do it, yeah. but I do it because I've been trained to do it for work so often. Um, right. But it's challenging. And, and that ancient part is very scary. <laughs> Finding an Well, agent.
1: a lot of this book, you know, Vicki, as you've read it, is about dealing with shame. Mm-hmm. And shame is the biggest constrictor of all and it's mm-hmm. the big inhibitor because when you are uh subject to shame, uh you want to hide. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: where's the best place to hide is in your little writing den, you know, where yeah. you're all alone and with your thoughts and dreams. So so um so a lot of the books about shame and I really recommend that you know, people read that carefully because it's crucial to um, freeing up different aspects of the self. And, you know, with me, I had to admit after a while, um, much as I identified with being terrified of, of reading or talking in front of people, that there is a bit of a ham in me. <laughs> yeah, and that I, I wanted it. I wanted to um, get in front and 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 tell people what I think and what, what I have to offer. So that's helped me support myself, and and uh, so maybe for others, it could find something similar that to to own the the critique, you know, or own the villain within. You know, we were talking about this morning. We've been talking a lot about Game of Thrones here because yeah, we have
0: been. That. Before we recorded, we started talking about Games of Thrones. Yeah, and <laughs> I love how, it.
1: In Game of Thrones, that last episode, episode five, you know, it, it, it reversed everything. You know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the evil Cersei is, is looking weak and vulnerable and even sympathetic and mm-hmm. standing in her towers watching everything destroyed. And so, um, you know, there's a way in which maybe the villain, what we think is villainous in us, or needs to be... Um, seen in a deeper way maybe there's something good about the villain something alive something risk-taking something that doesn't want to um obey other people's rules or who knows what but mm-hmm. something uh redemptive about it
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: so that and then the protagonist because i'm you know a 60s guy you know, <laughs> mohammed ali was one of my heroes uh, yes i just love the protagonist and it's a good way to sign off the book and really a celebration of everybody and mm-hmm. who's a writer and the whole ancestry of writers. Mm-hmm. When I feel bad, I often remember I'm part of something big, this ancestry of writers and that the creative impulse that went through them is the same that goes through me. Even though I'm not half the writer, half of them are, I, it's still, I'm touched by that creative spark that has been touching thousands for years, and and always will. And that gives me great joy, and and it sort of calms my shame brain down. <laughs> yeah.
0: and I think that's one of the most powerful messages in this book that I I took away too is is that ancestral aspect because um, it is so powerful when you can embrace that. And maybe you only wrote one sentence today but you were a part of this huge right. picture, right? And it, it's very empowering. I'll, I'll just share one little empowering aspect, not in writing, but when I experienced the ancestral aspect my first time and it really revealed to me and, and I'm embracing your your same theory and belief with the writing. Um, and then I've got, I'm going to have one request for you before we go because you're going to love it. I think you'll like how we're going to end this. But, um, so for me, when I had my first daughter, when I gave birth to her, I had, the minute she was born, I had a beautiful natural childbirth situation. It was one of the most spiritual moments of my life. My husband and I had the most amazing spiritual experience giving birth to her in a hospital setting that even the the nurses, they didn't get in our way. And the doctor, they really sat back and let us have that moment. Yeah, nice. during birth. It was beautiful. And um, the minute she was born, I literally had a vision of all my ancestral females standing at the end of the bed, ushering yeah. with their arms open into womanhood. And I talk about that often with my kids and my husband, because it really, I felt for the first time, the most empowering um, experience of my ancestors. And it was brilliant.
1: I think this is so crucial. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about this a lot in two respects. One is that, we all know how the feeling of solitude that can come upon you when you're writing, and that's real. But I like to start a day's writing remembering the ancestors, that you're not really ever alone. As long mm-hmm. as you're in relationship with that creative impulse, mm-hmm. you, you are connected with it in the present and in the ancestral realm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I do, you know, one of the big problems with writing is getting out of your own way. hmm Oh, so boy. I think it's great. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I refer back to the self-project of last week's discussion.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> but a, a really nice little simple exercise for writers to, um, to uh, uh, help, um, help with that is to, two things. One is to to begin your writing with dedicating the day's work like either to the people or person you dedicated the novel or book to or to others maybe who are ill and in so doing you can refresh yourself and dedicate it to to the ancestors and the creative impulse that pulses through everyone in this whole existence. Those are simple little things that can orient the mind towards relating to the muse, not to the ego, not to the self-project.
0: And I love that. And I think we're getting to a really great spot where we can end. And, and I'm going to ask, I didn't set you up for this, um, Philip, but I think the best way to end this entire two series of podcasts is if you wouldn't mind reading the very last chapter of your book, uh, the, your last paragraph, not chapter, the very last paragraph, which I think would be so fun to hear from your voice. <laughs> and,
1: oh,
0: and maybe so, not of
1: the epilogue
0: yes of the epilogue yes and um i know and so before you read that i'm going to just thank you once again for being here thank you for writing this book oh, and thank you. for sharing your wisdom with us and listeners and readers and writers. And if you're not even a writer, get the book. Cause I still think there's some value in it for you. Um, get the book and read it and work through it and, and let Philip know you got it and, and share with him your positive experiences from it. Um, so I'll have you read that last paragraph on 265 and then I'll take us out at the end.
1: So you want me to start from time to go? Yes. Uh-huh.
0: I think that's perfect. <laughs>
1: All right, time to go, but I don't wanna go, but you must. As Baby Suggs said, the trouble with the white man is he don't know when to stop. Time to put it down. After all these words, I hope what you take away will fit in the palm of your hand. Practice kindness in all directions, And remember, you are precious. No matter what comes your way, you are good enough. Write on and be encouraged. Namaste.
0: Yes, thank you. What a perfect way to end this podcast. And Philip, thank you so much for not only sharing this work with me, but befriending me in my process. And oh, great! And, um, and listeners, don't forget that he's going to be at a conference in September up north in Seattle. So make sure you get into the conference, and if you go see him, make sure you heard him on tell him you heard him on the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, please come introduce yourself,
0: Philip. Thanks again, and I really appreciate you spending the time with us in two episodes.
1: Been a pl- pleasure. Thank you, Vicki.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.